Welcome to the Legal Lowdown podcast series by Barton Gilman. I'm your host, Diana Bodette. Today, we'll be speaking with Barton Gilman partner and Providence attorney, Parrish Lentz, about trusts and estate planning. This is a two-part series, with part one addressing planning for your aging parents, and part two addressing how to plan for yourself and your family. Welcome to the podcast, Parrish. Thank you, Diana. Today, we're living longer and healthier lives, and this must have a significant impact on our approach to long-term care and to estate planning overall. No doubt. No doubt about it. With the increase and improvement of medical treatments and pharmaceuticals, a lot of us are living a lot longer, and the things that we might have died from 20 or 30 years ago aren't going to do us in like they would have back then. So it's important to keep that in mind. And also to keep in mind for long-term care planning, that means we're a lot more likely to end up in a skilled nursing facility for maybe an extended period. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what brought you to this area of practice? Sure. Thanks. I uh, graduated from college in uh, 1988, the twilight of the Reagan years. And I had a couple of jobs, taught school for a couple of years, and then I ended up being a, a paralegal in a firm for trust and estates work. And I actually still had one eye on teaching, and I got caught up in a case for a large estate and was assigned a very discreet task to try and save these folks some money from Uncle Sam. And it was fascinating, and I helped you know, save them maybe $100,000 or so. And that's that was real money. And after that, I just nerded out completely, got, went down the estate planning rabbit hole, went to law school, and <clears throat> I've been doing this for about 20 years in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Okay, great. Um, can you tell me what is the most common blind spot for clients in their 50s, 60s, maybe even their 40s? in um, approaching estate planning, thinking about it, even considering going to an attorney for the first time? Sure. I think uh, the one thing that people don't really appreciate until you've gone through it is how difficult it is dealing with uh, a parent or an aunt or uncle or uh, a friend that you're on the hook for that you have to to take care of. It's incredibly uh, demanding and... The, some of the worst situations that I've seen have been where a parent is really failing and they're really in crisis and they haven't really done the planning. They haven't decided, you know, who's going to run the show. And when children or other family members are battling over them while they're failing or they're diminished, it's a terrible, terrible situation. So um, that needs to be avoided if it's if it's possible it's a, it's a very uh, expensive and emotionally draining experience especially with uh, guardianships in in the in the probate courts i think um and a corollary to that would be what people don't really appreciate is the cost of long-term care uh what we used to call nursing homes which are now called uh, skilled nursing and rehabilitation facilities um, the cost is, you know, for a, for a private room is over $10,000 a month for most places. And for a lot of our, uh, thrifty New England, uh, clients, they've never paid that much for anything in one month. And 
that's going to be, you know, every, every single month. Wow, that's tremendous. Um, how do you recommend people start to even contemplate that kind of expense? Well, it's it's process, um, and it does require some time, and it does require some persistence. Um, but the most important thing is to try and do the planning before there's a crisis, um, you know, before someone has a bad fall, breaks a hip, uh, has a car accident, something, or a big cardiac event, something like that. Um, it's also, ideally would be styled, the discussion would be about control, you know, for, for your parents, like, who do you want to make these decisions? Do you want somebody different for your health care than making your finance decisions? You know, how much transparency, every family's different, most of the dynamics are pretty complicated. Uh, so they need to, to put some thought into it. Also, it's important to meet with a lawyer. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas about uh, what nursing home, you know, protecting money from the, the nursing home, keeping, you know, keeping the money out of the, the nursing home. And sometimes when, when people try to do the planning themselves, they run into some real real problems. I know that, you know, we've had situations where parents have just given away money or they've put their children, they own the house. Um, and that's a terrible, usually a terrible way to go because there's always a possibility. And we've seen it where the children kick the parents out of the house. They, you know, the idea was, yeah, they thought they were doing Medicaid planning. Maybe the child had a different idea of what was going on. So um, it needs to be done properly. It needs to be done so that um, everybody's respects what's happening and that there's a appropriate control. Okay. Do clients who have historically had plenty of money who then all of a sudden qualify for welfare in a situation like you've just mentioned where the parent has now been kicked out of the house by the child, the parent is pretty much penniless. Um, what's the sort of ethical groundwork there with, you know, this this parent has a family with money, yeah. yet they qualify for welfare? Well, going back to the kicking out, we feel it's unethical to kick <laughs> a parent out of the I house so that's too. been given to you. But the in general, though, it was... Fascinating. I think Medicaid is uh, a gigantic welfare program, and it's one of the largest budget items uh, for most states. And because of the cost of it, it is essentially unsustainable. It can't really continue the way it's going. And a lot of the attempts to fix it have not worked very well. I believe it was in the 80s, Congress passed a law that criminalized speaking with an attorney to do Medicaid planning. Now that, we have a little thing called the First Amendment that ran into a little bit of a problem there, so that um, that was done away with. But this, um, it's a welfare program for poor people. So there's usually, on one end of the spectrum is a person who is ready to live in a refrigerator box over a warm grate so that they absolutely sure give away everything so that not a single penny will, will go really for the long-term care. They'll qualify for Medicaid at any time. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum is if people have money, they feel like 
they genuinely need to be poor. They really should have run through all their money and every penny that they have at their disposal should be used for their for their medical care and especially their their long-term care. So those are the the two poles and most people are are somewhere are somewhere in in the middle. But uh, there is definitely um, you know we've run into to families where the parent really wanted to do some planning and try and protect some assets from the long-term care costs by putting them in a trust. So there's this Medicaid has a, basically a five-year look back. If you've given something away, when you go to apply for Medicaid, they say, hey, have you, have you made any gifts within the last 60 months, five years? And you need to answer no. Uh, so whether it was a million dollars or where, whether it was a $300,000 house, that's how it's protected. So we have had situations where the parent was ready to do the planning and there were four children. Two of the children said, this is great. Let's protect as much as we can. Two of the children uh, said, this is wrong. This is, we're not poor. This is really for poor people. So uh, my suggestion was to go ahead and do the planning and the children were the beneficiaries of the trust. And I said, at any time, you know, you two beneficiaries, you can withdraw your portion of the trust and you can pay this, you know, $10,000, $12,000 a month. So that was an option. I don't think that happened. Um, but, but there is defi- definitely, it's, it's something that people need to, to talk about and consider. And another consideration is that you may not want to show up at a skilled nursing facility as a Medicaid patient because uh, most nursing homes lose money on state Medicaid residents. So you probably want to show up with some funds that says, I can, you know, we can pay this for six months or five months so that your access, you'll have a lot easier time getting access to, to a bed. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, and too bad for the people who are just on Medicaid it is. I mean, up. and also it's interesting when we've, when you talk with clients who've been through it, and I'm thinking of more the people who have said, "Well, you know, my aunt was, she was a private pay, and she was paying, you know, ten, eleven thousand dollars a month. <clears throat> she got the exact same care as the person in the bed next to them, who was on Medicaid and who paid nothing. So uh, when it came time to discuss that." With this client, they said, oh, absolutely, we want to do the planning because I've seen it and there's absolutely, there's no difference. The the CNAs and the the nurses, they don't know the funding sources. That's not their job. Their job is, is to provide care. Right, equal care. So it's clearly better to have a plan in place, um, but how do you recommend clients get there when you have parents that are often resistant or resent their children creating the intrusion and wanting to understand their financial picture at the time and talking about their death, which is challenging. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a great book by Roz Chast, the cartoonist that, that we, we shared. And it's a memoir of she was an only child and her parents uh, were in their 80s or 90s and they basically, their health failed. And it's a it's a tough book, but it is very instructive, and it's called uh, "Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant," 
which is what most people want to do. And there's a great cartoon in there where she tries to engage her parents, you know, in a soft way, like, what if something happens to you? Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, something. <laughs> well, I, what, you know, and so they both just blow it off. And the last frames are the daughter at home going, Whew, and then the parents at home going, because they don't really want to talk about it. Right. So that's one thing. It is, it's tough. And the reality is, most of us aren't going to die suddenly with all the pharmacy options and treatments and stents and everything. The things that would have killed us 30, 40 years ago are not going to kill us going forward. So most of us are going to have an extended period of, of failing or, or disability. So that's a tough thing, which even in, you know, in my own family, we're, we're going through that trying to talk about, well, if something happened to you right now. Would you, where would you go for rehab? And if you had to have home health care, what, what would you need? Because my mom's about 80. But again, it's just a, it's an unpleasant thing, but it's going to be a lot better if we can work through that before, uh, before the crisis. And I think the other thing is simple respect. And there's a great, I'm not sure the source of it, but there's something called a, a 40-70 formula, which is when a child is 40 and the parent is 70, there should be a meeting where they say, hey, are your affairs in order? Do you have a will? Yes. Do you have a will? And a lot of times I'll meet with, with clients and I'll, one of the things I say is, are you on the hook for anybody? Are you on the hook for your parents, aunts and uncles? And some say yes. So I, and I said, that's great. You need to have copies of the documents. And some say, well, gee, I, I never thought about it. I said, well, do you want to know? And you want to be prepared for it. So that is a way to, to do it respectfully. I think one of the problems is as a parent, all of us who've been parents, you can't turn off your parent voice and nothing enrages. You know, if my wife uses parent voice with me, that makes me a little angry. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to turn that off. And when, you, when you're doing this planning from sort of a, you know, directing it at someone instead of working with someone, it's counterproductive. And a lot of the, you know, just in the, the common discourse, the way these things are phrased, it's, it's set up as a hostile takeover. I mean, you, you talk about like with the car, we're, we're taking the keys away. We're taking the keys away from mom or they're taking the keys away from me. And even, you know, we have clients with, they have pretty strong cases of, of dementia and they, they have trouble remembering things. But the one thing that they will remember is who took those car keys away from them. <laughs> sure. So it's more important to, you know, what we do is we say, okay, let's look at the financials of the car. You're only driving it to the grocery store and to church. So you're paying excise tax, insurance, gas, maintenance, repairs. And so we try to work on that thrift angle. Sure. Uh, uh, the other thing is, you know, you talk about that the discourse is we're going to put you in a home. You know, it sounds like you're being loaded into a shopping cart. So the, and same thing, you know, you, you got to clean out the house. Well, no, you don't, you know, we're going to go through everything. Let's preserve everything that we want to and make sure it goes to people you want. So it's important that, that that conversation, you know, be respectful. And again, doing it ahead of time, if somebody's in a hospital bed, you know, they're just at a disadvantage. It's just a, a power differential. They're they're a patient, and it's just a, it's it's not a great setting. So if people can do that 
proactively and keep the tone positive but realistic. And the other thing is, and just speaking from personal experience, it's not a one-time conversation. You got to stay at it because like the Roz Chass cartoon, there's going to be a lot of, whew, we dodged that. We didn't have to talk about what if I can't remember my children's names? What if I don't know? I love living in my house, but what happens when I don't really know how to get to and from my house anymore? And my friends don't drive anymore and I'm totally isolated in this house and maybe I can't handle all my activities of daily living anymore. Do I want to be all alone in my house with one caregiver who comes to see me and maybe my children come to see me or do I want to be in an assisted living facility where I'm surrounded by people of my generation and we can all complain about our children and why they're you know wasting their time on Twitter? Sure. <clears throat> well, it's such a huge role reversal, and I think that for parents, you know, we we reverse the roles and the and children step up to be to parent their parents. But we have to keep in mind respecting that our parents are people who've lived a lot of life and have a lot of experience, and though they may be failing and maybe childlike at times, they deserve a lot of respect and maybe approaching it from the perspective of early on and with care. Absolutely. Can go a lot further than as busy children who have our own lives going, approaching it from, a, all right, let's get this done because I've got to get to a soccer game. Exactly. We got violin lessons and, you know, yeah. it's, it, it is, and that's a great point. Uh, another thing about the respect is, you, you know, not to do it while you're looking at your phone and yeah. slowing it down and taking the time because, if you don't have these things in place, and I think we'll talk about that in a little minute, is if there's not anything in place, you're going to end up in a guardianship probate court, and the person who shows up to take charge may not be the person at the top of the list for the parent or of the siblings or family. So, right. you know, encouraging people to say, look, who do you want at the wheel? Is, is very compelling, and, and people really have to, to take the time to do that. Sure. So when you talk about asking clients if they're on the hook and if they are aware of that, can you talk us through what, what are the basics that parents should have in place in terms of what are the basic documents that they should have? Sure. We're, we're going back to this 4070 proposition. And again, setting a good tone for the discussion would be, here's what we should all have. This is what I have. Um, and every adult, 18 to 100, and I don't know how, how old is the oldest living person? 117, something yeah. like that. <laughs> so everybody who's over 18 should have a financial, a durable financial power of attorney. And durable just means that if something happens to you and you're not competent, you don't know what's going on, that power of attorney is still good. So that is just a way to designate someone to access your finances if you aren't able to do it. Even if you go to China or you end up going with uh, Elon Musk to Mars for a couple of years, somebody can sign your tax return. They can re-register your car. They can pay your bills. That may be a temporary thing or it may be a thing where you just, you can't do it anymore and you just turn it over to somebody. So that's the financial piece. Then there's uh, 
especially important is a healthcare power of attorney. And there is some confusion on that. For, for Rhode Island, it's, a health, it's called a healthcare power of attorney. For Massachusetts, it's called a healthcare proxy. But it's the same idea that you designate someone ahead of time in writing who will make healthcare decisions for you if and only if you're not able to do it, if you can't make informed medical decisions for yourself. So there can be some confusion over that because sometimes um, children feel like because they have a healthcare power of attorney or healthcare proxy, they are now in charge of the health care for their parents. But as long as a parent is able to make decisions for themselves or a child, they're in charge of it. They run it. This is a backstop. This is so that you don't have to go to the probate court for a guardian to get treatment or to, to maybe you're in a hospital, you want to move to another facility. Um, these facilities will require something in writing, especially if a person is not able to make decisions for themselves. And does that mean? Does that also include a spouse? If there's, a, if your parents are both living, does the spouse of the parent that can cannot speak for themselves, are they automatically assumed to be able to speak for them, or do they also need a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney? Do they, they, or do they also need to be designated as? They that? do. They okay. do because uh, just recently I had a a text from a friend of mine who started asking about guardianship and emergency guardianship. And uh, his brother-in-law had a, a terrible uh, brain injury and <clears throat> they wanted to move him from a facility. He might've been at Spalding or something in, in Boston. They wanted to move him closer to home. And the facilities did not think that was a good idea. Didn't think he was ready. So they said, well, who's, uh, you know, what's the authority? For, for moving this person. And they didn't have a healthcare power of attorney. So they insisted on having a guardianship, which to me sounds terrible and excessive, but I don't know what was happening on the other end. So absolutely, people should have this. Um, parent, uh, I mean, typically, a healthcare provider will not require that of a spouse. And, and the, the other document people should have is a, is a HIPAA authorization, uh, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. I got it. Um, so <laughs> if you have a, a HIPAA authorization, all that does is it lets you name someone like I need for my, my son. I have two sons who are over the age of 18. If I, and this happened, uh, my son was in a, an accident. He was out in Utah and we wanted to, you know, take a look at the records and said, you know, sorry, we need this, this HIPAA authorization. And my wife said, well, we don't have that right now. Uh, how about a hint? <laughs> and they said, well, we, we can't do hints. So it is something that, that everybody should need. But all that does is it allows your person you designate to speak with, with the doctors. You can't make any decisions, but it's important because you will have a voice. You'll have a voice with a doctor and you'll, you'll have that connection. You don't have the vote or the control that you might have with the healthcare power of attorney or the, the healthcare proxy. But those three documents, every adult should have as a minimum the healthcare power of attorney or proxy, the HIPAA authorization, and the durable financial power of attorney. Those are essential. Okay. And you mentioned that the guardianship was so severe. If you, if you had the healthcare power of attorney, 
you protect yourself from that guardianship situation. Can you just give me a very quick overview of what that is so that people can comprehend exactly why it is important to have the healthcare power of attorney if not with an understanding of what the guardianship would be? Sure. Um, the guardian guardianship is a court proceeding. So it's a case. It's uh, You file a petition with either a, uh, in Massachusetts, a, a county uh, probate court or in Rhode Island, a, a municipal probate court. It's public. Um, and the beauty of, like I said before, you know, the beauty of having a healthcare power of attorneys, you've picked the person. So if I know Diana, you're the last person I want to be in charge of my healthcare, decide, you know, pull the plug. And, and it may be for a good reason, because you love me so much, you can't, you could never pull the plug mm -hmm. on me, right? Right. So, totally. So, um, so you wouldn't <laughs> be a good choice for me. I want, if, if that's what's really important to me, my end of life, I don't want to you know, have any, you know, if I don't know who my kids are and I can't feed myself or whatever my situation is, I don't necessarily want to have some some big procedure uh, to keep me going. So the guardianship is very public. You have to have a uh, an assessment by a doctor that says, hey, this person's really, they're hurting. They need help with their finances. They need help with their association. They need help with their housing. And those are... Um, those are can be bruising where the, the sister and the brother are, you know, I'm going to be the boss of mom. No, I'm going to be the boss of mom. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the probate judges have to, you know, they'll make them co-guardians. And it's more of a, it's still a fight, but there's gloves and rounds. And, you know, that's probably the least favorite thing that the probate judges have to do. So you can avoid that with the healthcare power of attorney. And, um, if you go, if someone does go to get a guardianship, you know, one of the parts of the process is they'll say, well, is there already a healthcare power of attorney or a financial power of attorney in place? And if there is, what's the problem? I mean, why, why are we here? This person executed this. And, you know, then that's a little, you know, even if someone's determined to litigate the thing, that is a big hurdle to get over. Like, look, your mother executed this three years ago, what's the problem? Unless this person's stealing their money or, you know, wants to, you know, put them in a shopping cart and drop them over the Grand Canyon, you know, why are we here? Yeah. So, okay. but but the guardianship is, can be public, it's expensive, and it can be bruising for families. So just a simple document can usually help avoid that. Sure. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, so you've not mentioned one document that I thought for sure that you would because it's, it's the movie TV show document that everybody talks about and it's very dramatic and that is a will. Can Your you, last will and testament. The la the, yes. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think that, uh, you know, for a lot of estates, people will, uh, if they're the executor or the personal representative, it's called in Massachusetts, they'll say, well, are we going to have a reading of the will? And I'll say, you know, I've I've never seen one of those before, except in the movies and on TV. In 20 TV. years, you've never seen a reading of no, the will. No. Wow, that's interesting. But it does need to be transparent. There is uh, some estate planners have, they do uh, seminars called uh, What a Will Won't. Um, and the will will only handle what we call probate assets. Those are assets that are just in our name that 
a bank or an insurance company or a custodian won't transfer without this ticket from the probate court that says, oh, it's okay, this person's the executive or, or the personal rep. So, so they can take this money, put it in a state account, and take care of it. So the will, a lot of times, doesn't cover what people have. It's more important for a single person. But for a married person, like when, when my dad passed away, he and my mom owned a house that was joint, that went to her automatically by operation of law. He had uh, an IRA. She was the designated beneficiary, so she just filed a claim form with the death certificate, and it became her IRA. Um, and all their accounts were joint. So he did have a will, but we never even, you know, we didn't file it. There was no need to because there were no probate assets. It was a very uh, easy transition, and even things like uh, the Social Security. My mother was said, oh, my gosh, the people's Social Security were so nice, and it was all so easy. So it was a pretty simple transition. So people, you know, I have three brothers, and so, oh, this is, this is great. You, you know, didn't really need the will, and I said, no, stop. So now mom's single. You know, we're going to set her up, you know, and I even got her a Tennessee attorney. Uh, so <laughs> she, you know, she set up, had the powers of attorney, had a will and a trust and set things up uh, more appropriately. But I do think um, one of the downsides of that easy transition is people f just remembered as being easy. Mm -hmm. They didn't need a trust and they didn't need, you know, any real planning. So then you know, 10 years later, mom dies and it's not easy. It's, it's much more complicated. So, so it sounds like it's harder, um, when you have two parents and, and one parent or the first parent passes, it sounds like that's a, a simpler transition than it is once you're down to a single parent. And, right. then, and then what happens if that single parent has a long life to live, what if they get remarried? How does that possibly change it? And do you see widows or widowers getting married very often? Do they not? Is it 50-50? Um, that's a good question. I Statistically, I don't know. I think uh, men, widowers tend to remarry uh, just because the men are weaker, right? <laughs> so um, They need someone to do the laundry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that whole cooking, you know, thing is, is complicated. Dishwasher operation. But, you know, um, and, and going back to just, you know, doing planning with, with your parents, uh, that's a tough discussion because you're talking about, uh, hey, uh, what's going to happen to we have this lake house or we have this house on the vineyard. That's uh, dad's family or that's mom's family. So is that something that you want to have when dad or mom dies? Is that going to go into a trust? So the surviving spouse can use it, but really it's going to keep going. It's going to be for the children. Um, because I think, you know, the worst thing that could happen is that dad leaves everything to mom, mom remarries, and then she predeceases the second husband and everything is left to him. And then you know, he has children and that is a, uh, it's a, a tremendous, uh, 
source of activity for those of us in the legal profession. Step parents, stepchildren, uh, whenever that enters into a fact pattern, that is um, usually can be a spicy meatball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, also uh, the other issue can be with in-laws. So you're, you know, how do we, I've, I've never liked this daughter-in-law or son-in-law or, and, and the, one of the, the, the few estate planning jokes is, do you know the difference between in-laws and outlaws, Diana? I do not. Outlaws are wanted. So, <laughs> um, but, but the, uh, the, um, the, but the step-parent situation is something that's, and again, that's a very difficult situation, but if you do have a blended family. It's critical to talk about it. And going back to our, my favorite topic of the long-term care, people have the best of intentions. Dad is remarried. Dad has children from the first marriage that he wants to take care of. But dad's planning is such that he's going to leave everything to his second wife and hey, you're going to take care of my kids, okay? I want them to get something without any guidance or anything. Well, if that's someone who has that intention and then they develop dementia and they're healthy as a horse and they'll bury us all, uh, but they'll be in long-term care for 10, 12 years, all that money will be gone. So... And again, you get back to that ethics of do we want to do this planning for long-term care, for, for Medicaid? That is a tough discussion to have because dad wants to take care of his second wife, which is, is great. But I think most people, and again, this is not a, uh, hey, let's just sit down and talk about this. That's going to take a couple of rounds Um. It's the rare bird who's going to say, oh, no, no, I've, I've thought about that. And, yeah, I'm definitely going to do. So that is, that is some tricky planning. And, but, you know, and, again, people, uh, it may take a couple of years for people to really arrive at it, and they may have to live it a little bit. They may have to have a, a broken hip. They might have to have a, a brush with the a long-term care and, and rehab uh, situation. But And again, so the guardianship was horrible. The step situation can be horrible. There was a, we had a case where mom died, dad remarried. <clears throat> and then dad was failing and there was a lot of tension. And, and, you know, it's more common than not that there is, there is tension with the second marriage. And these uh, children didn't get along with the stepmom and they made no bones about it. And uh, they didn't have a good relationship. So... When dad died, um, he left everything to second wife. And, uh, you know, I spoke to these children. They said, hey, we don't really expect a big, uh, a big inheritance. She took care of him. You know, they were married for a while. But they did say, um, hey, we'd like to have the scrapbooks and we'd like to have the trophies and the, the family items from before you were part of the family. And she just said, no, they're mine. So uh, that was very tough medicine. And again, maybe a more respectful and persistent 
uh, discussion with dad could have been like, hey, we, we like to see, you know, these scrapbooks, we'd rather not just when she dies, her kids throw them away. You know, maybe they'll reach out to us, but, prob- you know, just as likely they won't because things, there was friction there. So um, that is tough. And it is, um, there's a lot more uh, blended families now. The other thing that I've seen is there's a lot more um, older people who are not getting married. So they live together, they're companions. Um, that's also very complicated uh, in some ways. In some ways, it's a lot less complicated for qualifying for Medicaid. They look at a married couple as, as a unit. So um, if your wife is a billionaire, you're never, ever going to qualify for Medicaid if that's something that's important to you. If your companion is a billionaire, no problem. Huh. They're, they're not looking at his or her assets. So it's, it's uh, more complicated, I think, too, with, um, with people who have maybe it's not their second marriage, maybe it's their third, fourth, fifth. Um, sometimes those folks don't, don't remarry, and it's, they have a great relationship, and it doesn't have the friction, and it doesn't have the baggage of, okay, here's my 75-year-old father who's getting married, or here's my mother. My God, is she going to be wearing a wedding dress? You know, what are we, you know, are we supposed to go to the reception and, and all this sort of thing? So there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that, and I think there's a lot more people who are um, taking a pass on that. Okay. You've mentioned long-term care several times. Um, and I'm curious about long-term care insurance and if that's something you recommend. You know, personally, I applied for long-term care insurance and I got turned down at 38 years old. So I'm curious uh, about that. And You're about a mess. I'm totally not. I'm su- in such good shape. It was shocking. But for those of us who have done that, it yeah. feels like a an unsurmountable hurdle to be able to get long-term care insurance. How does it actually work? I don't know. Oh. But I that's... tell you what people <laughs> should do is they should explore it. And 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 what they should do is meet with um, insurance people. In the 80s, the companies that first got into long-term health care and, and probably the early 90s, they offered these great policies and they lost their shirts because they didn't appreciate, and probably nobody appreciated, what the inflation would be for healthcare costs, uh, especially pharmaceuticals and long-term care. Uh, the inflation for that is, and healthcare in general, is just crazy, and nobody could have seen it. They did a great job. Life insurance, they've got down. You know, they've the actuaries, they've got it up and down. They make a ton of money off of life insurance. They know everything. They've got a smoker's rate and a non-smoker's rate. And, and they know how that works. They didn't know about health insurance. So a lot of people, when it first opened up, there was a half a dozen companies that did it. A lot of them lost their shirts and they're out of it. What I see people who are interested in that now, what they tend to get, is more of a, a blended product that is a life insurance. And also, again, with the thrifty New Englanders, or thrifty people in mm-hmm. general, you don't know if you're going to – you could get hit by a truck. 
So you don't know if you're going to need this long-term care. You know you're going to die. If there's one thing to take away from this, you're going to die. Everybody. Nobody's beaten it yet. So what they sell now is a blended policy. It's a life insurance policy with a death benefit that also has long-term policy benefits marbled into it. So, um, But straight-up long-term care health insurance is quite expensive. And for most people, they, they don't see the benefit of it because they may not need it. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us will have an extended stay you know, in, in, a, in a skilled nursing facility. So that's what most people are doing now. They'll get this blended product, but that's uh, really most people I meet with don't have it. The people who did have it have their long-term care covered for two, three, five years they set the money aside in a Medicaid qualifying trust and they made out great. Okay. How do you start that conversation going? For the long-term care? For long-term care, for um, you know, entering into a, a skilled nursing facility. How do you advise clients that they begin that process? Well, one thing, you know, backing up again to the way, way ahead of time before anything's a crisis, you start thinking about where would you want to go? Mm-hmm. Where, where have your parents gone? Where have your friends gone? So that's one thing. And that, again, that's a tough discussion because usually people say, like Roz Chas parents, like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Why would I need that? I don't know anybody. Like, you know, I'm, you know we're not going to talk about it. So it's going to take some time. So you need to pick, you know, it's great to be persistent mm-hmm. and respectful and, and stay on that. And then in terms of the long-term care, that's really a numbers game. You meet with an insurance person and, you know, or maybe a couple of them, and you say, here's my health, here's the money. And for people who are really concerned, maybe they have a family history of dementia uh, or they have a a dementia that tends to be genetic uh, or some other disease where they're really, really worried, especially, you know, if they've had a parent go through that, um, then they that's definitely a conversation worth having. Again, can't we talk about something more pleasant? <laughs> you can, but it's a it's an expensive and draining thing economically and emotionally for the family. So it's it's worth definitely worth exploring. And do you ever have clients whose parents know what they want and they're adamant about it? Um, whether it's I I want to die in this house and I will have nothing l- less than that, but that's really not in their best interest, whether it's dementia or or something else makes that not the best thing for them. Do you help clients through the process of, yeah. uh, I guess, convincing the because parent? Because the, the big, the thing that, that I hear is, we're never going to put you in a nursing home. We will never do that to you because that's a betrayal. You know, we're betraying you. We're putting you in a terrible place. And what I try to steer the conversation to is we want to keep you in your home as long as you feel safe and as long as you feel like this is the best setting no matter what all of us we should be in the best possible setting we have you know the best best possible situation you can have so those things change and i tell the story of you know had a client she was very independent lived by herself she drove till she was about 92, which I begged her to get rid of the car at 89, <laughs> but she did get rid of the car at, at you know 92 or whatever. Then she had a fall, 
and she went into a nursing home, excuse me, a skilled nursing facility <laughs> where she, you know, got care. And she was very frail. And she kind of blossomed there because she didn't have to worry. Um, you know, and even when you have the life alert, it's not the same. There were people there all the time. And it's interesting, she was not in a private room and she had the funds. She could have been in a private room. She poached her bunkmates, neighbor, or her visitors. They'd come <laughs> in and they'd be, oh, hi. Yeah, I know you from blah, blah, blah. And, the, you know, the, the, the bunkmate would just be staring daggers at her. Like, how <laughs> dare you intercept my visitors here? So as long as every, you know, it's, it's hard for people because even a great nursing home is not a great place from our perspective. But if you can steer that conversation to, we want to keep you in the best setting. And there just comes a time. My grandmother, she lived in her house. She started to have some health problems. One night she fell, couldn't get to the phone, spent the night on the floor. And she was like a tough, very realistic, smart woman. And she's like, okay, I'm done here. Let's go. Let's, you know, let's go to the assisted living because this is, I'm not doing that again. This is ridiculous. And I'm not going to do it to you because my mother was, you know, undone. Right. Oh, mother spent the night on the floor. Uh, you know, that's, it's not safe. So again, people have a, this bias against a skilled nursing facility or, or you know, w w even if it's an assisted living, they call it, you know, the place. You're going to take me to the place? <laughs> I don't want to go to the place. But, you know, people don't, again, we, we see ourselves in the rearview mirror. I probably see myself as a robust 35-year-old, um, which I'm not anymore. But it, it's hard to, let's say, you know, things are going to break down, and people don't want to talk about that. But, but they should, because, again, there's going to come a point where maybe, you know, this whole thing about we'll never put you in a nursing home. Never's a long time, man, you know? So, so if you can pivot the conversation a little bit and say, hey, look, you know, what if nobody comes to see you anymore? You're, you're trapped in your house. You're isolated. And I think that's the real, that's the, that's the harm that I see for people who really want to stay in their own home. Your kids, if they can't get there every day or they live in Oregon, you know, they can't get to Cranston. And, you know, the socialization from assisted living and nursing home is something that may be a way for people to, to talk about it. And again, most of us, and especially as we get older, a lot of us want to be with our own generation, our own cohort, mm -hmm. and complain about everybody else. It sounds great. I can't wait to go into a nursing yeah. home personally. It's a skilled nursing like a facility, <laughs> doggone it. It's a long-term care facility is yep. another buzzword. Yep. Um, I think it's like a college dorm all over again. Yes. And I'm hoping it's a hot scene of singledom and game playing. <laughs> um, going back to talking about Medicaid, welfare, Medicare, can you just give us a quick overview of what those things actually are? What's the difference between them? I can because I, I was... I'm on the board of a skilled nursing and rehabilitation facility, and it took me about three years of going through the budgets to figure out what is the difference. Um, Medicare is health insurance, and it's for people who are over 65. You automatically qualify. When you turn 65, you get a card, which now is not does not go off your Social Security number anymore. You have your own uh, Medicare card at Medicare number. So that's health insurance. And... If you have a, a stay in a hospital, you have a cardiac event, you break a hip, 
you're in the hospital for three days, in general, Medicare will cover a stay in a skilled nursing and rehabilitation facility. You know, is it, you know, it might be 90 days, might be 100 days, and as long as you're making progress, that's going to be covered. If you decide, I like it here, you like the games, you like <laughs> the food, you're crushing it at bingo, then there's an issue of, okay, Medicare is out. So then are you going to pay privately or are you broke? Do you qualify for Medicaid? And Medicaid is a welfare program for indigent people to help pay for their health needs, including long-term health care. So most of the people who are in beds, long-term care beds in this country, the majority is paid for by the federal government, by Medicaid. So there are private pay people, and I think most of the people, except for the you know pretty affluent people, uh, most of the people who are private pay, the clock is kind of ticking on them. They will end up as Medicaid qualifying people. They they're, they're going to go go through their money. Okay. So those are, that's a difference, and I think people kind of blur them together, or they you know confuse them. But you think of Medicaid. You know, for for purposes of our discussion, also provides health care for younger people who are who are indigent. But long term care is Medicaid, and Medicare is, is the health insurance you get automatically when you're 65. Thank you for joining us for the first part of our trusts and estate planning podcast with Parish Lentz. Please tune in for part two. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.